Hello, and welcome to the Workplace Justice Podcast. This podcast helps to inform and empower you about your rights within the workplace. We cover topics and examples of various matters in employment law, including sexual harassment, pregnancy discrimination, racial discrimination, how the courts define a hostile work environment, whistleblowing, and everything in between. Workplace Justice is brought to you by the New York City Employment and Civil Rights Law Firm, Nassar Law Group. Here are your hosts, Mahir Nassar, Casey Wolnowski, and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Workplace Justice Podcast. My name is Meyer Nassar, and I'm joined with hosts Casey Wolnowski and Jeffrey Rosenberg. Today's discussion is about gender stereotypes and caregiver discrimination. Today's featured guest is the founder of Pontax Law LLC, which represents employees in areas of employment law, focusing specifically on gender and caregiver discrimination. She is an activist and has lobbied for the passage of the Massachusetts Pay Equity Law and the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking out the time to speak with us today. Thank you for having me. It's one of my favorite subjects. So so tell us a little bit about this subject. Tell us about caregiver discrimination. So I might also call it family responsibilities discrimination. It's referred to either way. I think the most important thing to say up front for the listeners who are lawyers is that I'm not talking about a particular law. I'm talking about a fact pattern. And what this is, is moms and dads and people who care for elders or kids with special needs or anyone who needs care being penalized in the workplace because of the caregiving that they do. And the penalties are generally born out of stereotypes. And most of these are rooted in gender, but some of them are just rooted in what we think about caregivers. And the stereotypes are generally stuff like, well, if you have to care for your special needs child, you're going to be very distracted at work. You're not going to be focused on the work that you're doing during the day. You're going to be really focused on your kids or your parents or whoever it is that you're giving care to at home. And this is, um, I'm going to take a step back for a second, because the way to understand this best is to think about who's our ideal worker in the society. Our ideal worker is generally someone who has no caregiving responsibilities never has to cook dinner, never has to vacuum a carpet, never has to call the plumber, never has to wait at home for the cable guy. In fact, our ideal worker wouldn't get up to go to the bathroom if that was at all possible. And that generally describes the traditional male breadwinner. And so when women came into the workplace, when they were brought in, everyone said, hey, this is equality. This is great. Except for what they meant was you have to look the way a traditional male breadwinner looks. No caregiving responsibilities, no issues with your kids, no issues with pregnancy, no issues with having to care for your mom that's got Alzheimer's, none of that. And so a lot of times we're most informed about how these stereotypes come out with women. So the mom who's told, well, we're going to cut your hours because you've got kid responsibilities now. And so you can't work as often. We're not going to put you on this project where you have to travel, even though it's a stepping stone to bigger things, because, well, we don't want to put too much on your plate. You have kids. Sometimes these are even well-meaning. Sometimes people think they're being helpful. But what they're really doing is penalizing the person who's working because that person now doesn't have the career trajectory they once did, maybe are missing out on hours and money that they need to help their kids. I had one pregnant employee who was told, well, we're not going to let you do this overtime work. And we want to protect your baby. But she was counting on that overtime work because that was how she earned the money to pay for the Christmas gifts for her kids. So without that, she was really undermined. And she was planning on taking maternity leave, which at the time was not paid in Massachusetts. It now is. But then it wasn't. 
So she was going to work overtime to earn the money to carry her through her maternity leave. So now that rug was ripped out from under her. So while the individual who was worried about the health of her fetus was actually really penalizing her quite badly. So this is how we have to think about it. But a lot of times supervisors don't. Now, that being said, there's a lot more men that are stepping up to do traditional women's roles. And what I, my shorthand for this is, well, when men start to look and act a little too much like a girl, they get penalized too. So men who are primary caregivers, men who are caring for parents who have some sort of disease as they age, men who are caring for maybe brothers or sisters who have some sort of mental or cognitive disabilities, anyone in that category, the stereotype is that you are not living up to your breadwinner stereotype, right? You, why aren't you hiring someone to do this? Why aren't you outsourcing this to someone else? Do we need to pay you more so that you don't have to do it? I sued a law firm. And this was our theory, was that our client, who had to be the primary caregiver of his children because of his wife's mental health decline, was penalized for it and terminated. And as he was terminated, he was told, well, you've had a lot of personal issues. But he had just finished taking FMLA leave, which very few men in the firm did. So he was really, he called it acting a little too much like a girl. Because the women in the firm who did that, they would get marginalized, but not fired. He got fired. So it does happen with men as well. So when I talk about family responsibility, discrimination, and stereotyping, this is everything that I'm talking about. It can violate a whole bunch of different types of laws. It can violate Title VII, which is the anti-discrimination law, because that prohibits stereotyping. It could violate the Americans with Disabilities Act. So it's actually less known than I wish it were, but there's a part of that law that says you can't discriminate against someone if they're associated with a person with a disability. So that's mom with Alzheimer's, child with special needs that maybe has ADHD and maybe you need to do something for that person. Someone who's getting over a drug addiction. In Massachusetts, we have a real problem with opioid addiction, one of the worst in the nation. If you have a brother or sister, you know, husband, son, daughter who is addicted and your employer thinks that this is just taking up too much of your time, that could be a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act. There's also, of course, the Family and Medical Leave Act. In Massachusetts, we have paid family leave now. That's another area of potential discrimination. We also have this weird law in Massachusetts called the Small Necessities Leave Act. (laughs) What it does is if you have to go to parent-teacher conferences with your kids or like take your mom to the doctor, you get 24 hours a year to do this and your job is preserved. It's one of those little quirky things. But many states have these. And many states and even local places will have specific laws covering parents and protecting them as a protected class. The city of Boston does. The city of Cambridge, Massachusetts does. There are actually a number of cities across the nation that have protections for parents. And there's a number of states that have protections for parents. Alaska has protections for parents, for example. New York State, New York City has protections for parents. So it's really very important to know if there's a particular protection for parents but to also know that even if there isn't, it doesn't mean that your employer can do whatever it wants. Okay, so that's a really long answer to your question. <laughs> and um, if it's not involving disparate treatment between individuals within different protected classes, federally, if an employer and familial status, let's say, is not protected, if an employer 
let's say, allows one female to take a leave of absence, and again, they're not entitled under the FMLA, and doesn't allow another female to take that same sort of leave for the same parental responsibility, would there be anything that that individual can do? Because they're not being discriminated against, they're being treated the same as this, they're being treated differently than the other woman. Maybe. I mean, okay. to answer your question, maybe. Okay. Does one person have one kid and the other person have two? Is it the same supervisor or is there a new supervisor now? Did a different supervisor allow it for the first woman, but we have a second supervisor who's not having it? Do we, I mean, it really depends on a lot of different things because if what you want to show is that there's a stereotype being applied, which there might be, it'll depend on what the circumstances were and who said what to whom. I mean, it's treating, having a bunch of mothers in the workplace or being a mother yourself and making a decision like that does not insulate you from liability. Whether you can prove it or not, or whether when you're talking to trial lawyers, are you going to prove this in front of a jury? Maybe, maybe not. But is it insulating the employer from the law? No. Okay. It doesn't mean that you're all clear and you're fine. I think a lot of employers assume that. And there's actually, interestingly, there's some evidence to show that these diversity in these DEI initiatives, this is great. This is great. Love it. I'm glad people are doing it. But there is some evidence to show that when employers engage in those types of things, they are less likely to believe that there is a violation of law going on in their workplace. There's also a tendency to think, well, we've accommodated you enough, so we don't have to do any further. And that is not necessarily always the case. So frustrating as it might be on a personal level for management, it's very important to be careful in these situations. It's important because the facts can matter a lot. I mean, I had a guy who informed his employer on the first day that his wife was in her end stages of cancer. He said, I won't be able to work over 40 hours during this period of time because I will have to care for her. And he was fired four hours later. Turned out there were a lot of very flexible workplace arrangements. And he was told that he was being fired because they needed him 24-7. Turned out lots of people worked remotely, including the supervisor. <laughs> you know, And none of so them had if anything spouses happened, who were sick. That's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> so none of them knew what association discrimination was either. And so, right. <laughs> so, or the different decision might have been made. I think I uncovered some evidence in that case that the decision may have been driven by a desire to get the recruiter feedback. Oh, okay. So sometimes management may be well advised to not be penny wise and pound foolish. Mm hmm. Mm. I was just curious about, are there ever examples of like disparate impact cases where there's some policy Mm. with respect to leave or overtime that disparately impacts caregivers or one gender? So I haven't seen one that's been like reported yet, like Mm -hmm. actually went to a decision and was reported. I have brought one. I know others who have brought one. Okay. I think that the theory is out there. I had a case years ago against an employer who told my client that she was required to put in 60 hours of FaceTime a week, which was actually not the case. No one else did. And so I brought a claim for disparate impact, which they tried to dismiss at summary judgment, try to kick it out before trial. And the judge allowed it to go forward. Now we resolved the matter. So Mm -hmm. I never had to try it. Okay. It never actually went. So I can't speak to what might have been, but I can tell you that the judge didn't think it was crazy. You know, it was, he claimed to my client that it was their policy that everybody had to be here for this amount of time. We contended that there were plenty of other ways to do what you wanted to do. And in fact, they were being done with other men who didn't have the responsibilities as my client. Oh, wow. Okay. So Um, that was only really being enforced towards the women. 
Yeah, and okay. they tried to say she was part-time, which we contended that she was not. But then he okay. also said that part-time referred to several other men who had... Anyway, there was a lot of weaving around by the employer, okay. which I think made the judge a little suspicious. But the judge said, no, I think she can bring this claim, and at least she gets to develop it, which they didn't want me to do either. So, yes, that's out there, and there are people like me who are looking around and who are bringing the claims to see if we can test it. But yeah, I think it would behoove everyone to take a look at these policies and, you know, look at your workplace flexibility policy. We're seeing a lot of those too, right? That's great. Mm -hmm. Okay, what happens when employees use it? Are they stigmatized? Are they marginalized? Are they penalized in some way? Are you actually discouraging its use, which I'm sure the employees don't want to actually. And who's that falling more heavily? The women Mm -hmm. that have kids? Of course. I read a very interesting article that said that now post-pandemic, we might see a lot more remote work. We've gotten used to it. Employers can downsize their rent footprint. Great. But there are also studies that show that managers value remote work less. Are we going to start seeing the people taking advantage of that, who I suspect will be mostly women, being paid less, have less bonus potential, being shunted into a like 80% or something sort of position? I would suggest people need to keep a close eye on that too, because I would argue that's discriminatory. It'll depend mm, on the exact yeah, I'd argue that's discriminatory. Are caregivers entitled to accommodations in the workplace as a caregiver, or is it more so how they're compared uh, and how they're treated to other similarly situated employees who aren't caregivers? That's a great question, Bill. I'm glad you asked it. For the most part, they are not entitled to accommodations as of right. In Massachusetts, we have a Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. So pregnant workers, to the extent that they need an accommodation, are entitled to one. If what you're talking about or what you're envisioning is someone who needs a later start time to drop the kids off in the morning, you're correct. The law doesn't require that. However, if you're also allowing a later start time because someone is commuting from Maine, somebody who has to drop the kids off doesn't get it, that will be very problematic. So employers still do need to watch out for that. And employees should know that, you know, I mean, I fail to see what the difference is between a lactation break and a cigarette break. In both instances, you're not doing work. <laughs> for somebody who needs a break to talk to their kids on the phone, I fail to see why that's any more distracting than the employee who goes out to smoke a cigarette and is playing on Facebook and posting things that are making them so angry they come back and can't work for a half an hour because they're right. amped up and angry about things they're posting on Facebook. Mm-hmm. So I fail to see the distinction. But yeah, I wouldn't go in and demand an accommodation. Classic cases, uh, Young versus UPS, where the pregnant worker wanted an accommodation. They said no. <laughs> the guys who got caught driving drunk and lost their driver's license got a light duty job. Right. It had to go to the Supreme Court, unfortunately, but basically the answer was, well, you know. Right. Yeah, you can't treat them differently. No, but it's a good question. It's a good question because I think those two concepts get melded together in people's Mm -hmm. heads, right? Because if you're giving care that, yeah, you need a little knee break. Um, You need a little help here. You need a little little gift. But we also have a law that baseline doesn't require any gift at all, right? Unless you have a disability. Right. So it gets a little tricky there, but or you're covered under the FMLA, right? Right, yeah, right. You get the time off under the FMLA. You can use it intermittently, for example. Let me actually bring this up right now because this is a phenomenon I see a lot, mm-hmm. especially with people that are perhaps being retaliated against for something. So no, you don't get an accommodation. But there's a lot of informal stuff that goes on, and sometimes when employers want to penalize employees, what they do is they'll stop allowing the informal accommodation and suddenly require them to use up FMLA leave. Because when they use it up and they know that they're going to still need it even after they use it up, then we'll fire it. Gives, them, right? 
Right. We'll tag you then. Yeah. Right. They exploit that, and it gives them an excuse to now get rid of the employee. Boy, right. Because, oh, well, but you used up your FMLA, so you can, sorry, right. you can't do that anymore. Nothing more we and can do. And then you do. come in late. Oh, now you're late. Now we're going to penalize you. Like, oh, three strikes, you're out. Ha, ha, ha. You know. Right. Um, I would suggest that that might show retaliation for having taken FMLA, but it's a common management ploy, actually. Mm-hmm. I see that a lot. Because people say, well, but they have to take FMLA leave. Well, let's look at the context here. It wasn't a problem until suddenly they did win. Yes. But Rebecca, in terms of gender stereotypes, let's talk a little bit about the different types of stereotypes that people experience within the workplace. I'm trying to think where it's such. It's a lot. It's so many, right? I know. It's just like, wow, where do I start? It's a lot of concerns about reliability, mm-hmm. concerns about focus concerns about availability so you hear things like you have a lot on your plate right now you're causing the team to have problems functioning we can't get a hold of you when we need you and many times that's tied to whether or not the employee is sitting at their desk so that the manager can come down running whenever they freak out and see them sitting at their desk it's not actually about whether this person responded to an issue in a timely manner but those are common misconceptions about caregivers so, you know, oh, well, we need to be able to call you at 11 o'clock at night. One, is that really the case? Two, how often does that actually happen? And three, is that you mean that person is not available? Maybe that person checks their email at a certain time, or maybe this could be managed in a different way. But the assumption is if you're not sitting at your desk, if you don't respond to an email, Slack message, whatever, within 10 seconds, you're not available. I dealt with a case years ago where a woman after came back from maternity leave, that was their big mm-hmm. issue. She's not available. And one of the issues involved, she wasn't available. They, and she had her door shut. They didn't like it that she had her door shut. Yeah, she had her door shut because she was pumping. Okay. And so, no, the male partner could not burst into her office whenever he felt like it because she locked the door. Cause she right. But she the was right there. And if he'd waited 15 minutes, she would have been able to open mm-hmm. the door. So it's things like that. Men will often hear what I call the loose lips comments, but things like, well, can't you get your, you know, whatever female relative to do this? Can't you hire someone to do this? Isn't that your wife's job? And some men have reported a lot more hostility. Like women, the stereotype will often look benevolent. We're trying to help you. You know, we just don't want to overload you. It's never like that with men. It's always, well, you got to figure out how to deal with that because we can't deal with that here. you got to figure out how to, how to solve that problem. There's something else I was alluding to it before. I think it's sometimes you call it second supervisor syndrome. You'll have a situation with an employee who had formal accommodation of some sort for a long time, an informal understanding for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then you get a new supervisor. And the new supervisor doesn't want this. Right. And so while, yes, under employment at will principles, supervisors and managers can change the rules at any time for whatever reason they want, is it really necessary to do that? And are they doing that as a way to penalize the employee and push them out the door? Those are situations where you'll see what I, what I was talking about before. Oh, suddenly you got to start using FMLA loop for all that. You never had to before. It was never an issue before. But now suddenly you got to start using FMLA. And nothing changed with respect to the job. The no, duties are the exact same. They were able to right. do it before. There's no reason why they can't continue right. to do it now. But now mm-hmm. suddenly it's instead things have been shifted around to make it impossible for the employee to continue working. Right. So you'll see things like that. You'll see concerns about reliability. We need to be able to count on you. I had a client years ago who was literally told that she was out a lot because she was doing fertility treatments. She had been trying to get pregnant. She had had a, a couple of miscarriages. And her supervisor said to her, all this being out, you're just dragging the teeth down. We can't count on it. 
the data showed she was the biggest producer. She had to miss some meetings or she was out. She wasn't actually sitting in her chair in the office. Right. And that meant she was dragging the team down. Which didn't um, actually make so, sense. So, you know, right. Well, not when you look at the data. Numbers, right. <laughs> she exactly. was getting more bugs worked out and more code written. She was a coder, essentially. If she worked okay. in software. So it wasn't a customer service job where maybe she needs to be sitting at the desk to handle the customers. She was taking right. tickets in and working. So jobs like that are sometimes if you've got like actual data there, you can say, well, wait a minute. Interestingly, she's lawyers pro- who mm-hmm. yeah, she's actually performing. Right. Is this what you want well, to do? You know, right. Right. <laughs> I mean, what else did you want? It, even in professions where you would not necessarily expect you to have data, like in mm-hmm. the legal profession, look at the hours. Who build? Right. People like to talk about your hours are trending down. Oh, yeah, really? Look at everyone else's trending down. Mm-hmm. What's so special about this person? Rebecca, I wanted uh, to ask, have you ever seen, yeah. I guess, the stereotype cut the other way? Right. And where a lot of times you'll see with, say, for example, female caregivers, there's a particular destructive stereotype associated with new motherhood, right? Just having a newborn or having a young child versus a man whose wife or or partner has a newborn. And it's the stereotype of, well, now this person is more serious. Now this person has to focus on his job more because he has a family to take care of. We don't need to worry about him going out late at night or calling in the morning after, let's say, St. Patrick's Day because he's hungover because he has a family to care about and this job means so much to him. It's really important. We have seen that here and there where we've had represented female caregivers who have said, I couldn't believe it. I had a male colleague whose wife just had a child and they were bestowing upon him all kinds of new responsibilities because they believed that he was somehow changed for the positive. Whereas for me, they were starting to kind of pull back responsibilities. Have you seen that at all? You know, I have not seen that particular (laughs) phenomenon, at least not in contrast to coming complaining about discrimination. I've actually seen a lot more of men who wanted to be a part of things and wanted to take paternity leave. I had one guy whose supervisor said to him, what are you going to do, stare at the baby while it sleeps all day? Which he said to me, I think that guy just never knew what he had to do at home because his wife did it all. And I said, no, I think that's probably true. But yeah, And no, that's I a stereotype not, he's imparting on you. That's it. I mean, he's like, what do you need it at home for? What do you need right. to take this leave for? That's not what you do. You have a wife for that, right? That's what I had. I have seen a lot of cases where women who are mothers and handled it in a certain way, then there's women who want to handle it in a different way. And I think those cases can be tricky to present to a jury. But I do think that they can introduce very problematic notions of what a proper mother is supposed to do. And if you're going to enforce that on your employees, I think that could open up liability. Just because one person handled maternity in a certain way doesn't mean that because your employees are handling it in a different way that you can then penalize them and it's not illegal necessarily. Because I, I see that play out a lot. Oh, well, you know, I got a nanny. Mm-hmm. That's good for you. Right. Why can't you? <laughs> Query whether this person can afford it on what you're paying them, but let's leave that out for a second. That's not necessarily how this person wants to parent. And whether or not you're a good mother and you play into what a good mother is supposed to be in this one person's mind, I would argue that's a stereotype forced on a female that Title Seven prohibits. Are there certain industries where you see this sort of stereotyping and discrimination happen more often or is more prevalent or it crosses all? It looks different. But at bottom, it's always the same thing. I mean, okay. whether it's somebody who works at a fish factory whose hours are cut, or who's told, mm-hmm. no, you can't have your husband bring the baby in for you to breastfeed, or it's a physician who's told, 
well, we don't have room for people that can't be here 60 hours a week. It's really what they're saying is, we think you're a problem. We think you're going to be a problem to the organization. We don't think you're going to be a good worker. We think you're going to be a poor worker. And so you either take less money or less pay or you get out. That's the underlying assumption of everything. How it shows up and what actually happens is going to be different because if you're working the line in a fish factory, your context is different than if you're a doctor working in a doctor or a lawyer working in a law firm. Right. I will say the knowledge workers certainly, I think, may get a little more off-ramping time before they're actually thrown out of the organization. They're probably also not as blunt because people are a little bit smarter, maybe get a little more right, educated more by HR. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, what's going on? It's, 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 it's all the same. I tell a lot of my clients, sadly, no one's all that original right. in what they do and why they do it. Yep. Yeah. We see the same patterns over and over again. Yes, that's exactly what it is. You just have to learn to look past the particular situation to say, oh, wait, I see. This is how it's operating here. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, do you think that there's going to be, I guess, in light of Bostock and Justice Gorsuch's delving into sort of sex plus discrimination, do you foresee anything on the horizon, so to speak, as a wave of cases regarding... I guess, caregiver plus or sex plus, maybe something along the lines of sex plus age or something along those lines, which might be a new way that that courts are going to have to analyze these types of cases? Okay, I am going to answer your question, I promise, but I've got something else to say first. I am only cautiously optimistic that Bostock will have much of an effect on how we prove cases with the whole but for. I appreciate that Justice Gorsuch recognized in this situation that but for causation perhaps is not as narrow as many of his predecessors were implying that it was. But I think we have to remember who Justice Gorsuch is. What is it that his decisions show is important to him before we get too happy about a sea change in the interpretation of the law? I don't think he is going to expand what he said in Bostock much beyond the literal application of what he wrote on the page. He is a textualist like all the other ones. I don't foresee him as being expansive. I think we who represent employees look at things more expansively by nature. And I think it's in our nature to think, oh, well, this now means an expansive interpretation. I won't believe that until I see it. And I think if there is a lower court that rules too much more expansively, I think the Supreme Court will pull it back to where exactly where they think it should be. I think Justice Gorsuch's, I mean, particularly when it comes to religious, if there's a religion issue involved, if there's an issue of religion saying that we want to interpret it a certain way, I think Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito will join him in this, are going to allow that religious institution to do what it wants, because that, I think, is their philosophy of the law. So I don't see Bostock as a sea change. I, I see it as a particular set of facts in a particular situation that went very well. And if we can recast our cases to look like that, perhaps it will continue to go well. But I would not assume that Bostock is this expansive opening of the law to interpret but for to be kind of more of a range of things. So now to your question, Casey, about (laughs) sex plus or anything plus. I actually try to avoid sex plus. I don't like the case law. And, And I don't think stereotyping is sex plus. Stereotyping is a cognitive phenomenon that happens. And it's been recognized in a lot of cases. In the First Circuit, Thomas versus Eastman Kodak is a great case where the court really explained about stereotyping and how it operates. And I think that the way the law under the sex plus theory has evolved doesn't take that into consideration. So I resist that label. And I, I will not go to a judge and say, this is a sex plus theory. I say, no, this is a stereotyping theory. 
Uh-huh. Because I think that you have to focus on what it is that's going on in people's, if we're going to be focusing on intent, right? Then we have to be focusing on how the human brain is operating. And I think sex plus has been construed as this like bucket one plus bucket two equals bucket three. And I think that's very restrictive. And I think that it is not explaining how the brain is cognitively operating the stereotype. So I do resist that. When you're talking about sex plus age, I think what you want to talk about is not sex plus age, but who are older women? Where do we assign them roles in this society? And when they step out of it, are we penalizing them? That's the question that I think we should be asking. Not if this is a sex plus age equals discrimination. I think you're always going to lose when you frame it that way. Um, sorry, I, I'm not trying to belittle what you just asked, Casey, at all. Nor am I trying to tell you that's the wrong question. So I don't frame my issues that way. I had one judge that said, this is not a sex plus theory. And he wrote his opinion. This is a sex plus theory. It's more than just gender plus age. It's a totality. Stereotypes are roles we assign to people, right? Right. We have a a shortcut in our brains that says, this is the role for mommy. This is the role for daddy. This is the role for an older woman. This is the role for an older man. And so it's not a limited check off the box, this, this, and this. It's a role we have for people. Are they playing into that role as their employer thinks it should be played into? And Title VII is pretty clear that we're not allowed to assign gender roles of whatever sort to either gender. We're supposed to let people be who they are and not say, you're not man enough, you're not woman enough. And what that is, is going to change over time. That's what I don't like about the sex plus thing, right? What happened in Price Waterhouse to Ms. Hopkins happened in that particular era at that particular time. Those facts are not going to replay again because we've moved on as a society, right? So that's why I, I don't like talking about, you know, X plus Y. I, I don't see it that way because I don't think it's how the human brain works. And I think there's right. a lot of evidence and that's starting to become popularized with the implicit bias test and more of the DEI is now including instruction on what implicit bias is. It's a function of how the human brain works, right? It's not anybody's fault per se. They're not evil. It's how our brains work. But we're intelligent enough that we know how to cut this off at the past so that it doesn't have poor consequences. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what Title VII is trying to get at. And I think that's what these judicial theories, because there's no sex plus written in Title VII. That's a judicial theory. Judges created that. And I think judges created it based on a misconception of cognitive theory, essentially. And that's not just me saying that. There's sociologists who have written papers and law reviews on this stuff, right? right? There's a lot of defenses that judges made up. Like the honest belief defense. I mean, what's that? That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And I'm not trying to be disparaging, but it's not how the human brain works. It's not it's simplifying work. it too much. Um, it, it is. It's relying on a certain theory of cognitive behavior that most cognitive behavioral specialists will tell you is wrong. Right. Has been disproved. So, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, I've argued this in amicus briefs. I don't think that we should enshrine wrong human behavior theories that are erroneous into the law. I don't think that's the right thing. And if what you're doing is relying on a theory of human behavior that's wrong, then we got to stop relying on that. Right. And easy catchphrases like honest belief defense hide a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the problem is. When I say ridiculous, I'm not trying to be disparaging. I think that, like you said, it's oversimplification. Right. It's misguided. And I don't think we want, yeah, we don't want misguided stuff in the law. Okay. I mean, we're not going to, you know, if somebody brought a theory on the world being flat, we're going to say to them, look, sorry. Kyrie Irving. It's been disproven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
That's who All we're right. talking about right now, Kyrie Irving, right? Yeah, no, I think the reason I asked about the sex plus discrimination is I could absolutely envision a scenario whereby a company, and maybe I'm just being a cynic, right? I don't mean to have a negative worldview, but a woman who has, let's say, a child at a later age than what is the national average, which quite frankly, we're here in New York City, so we're at the kind of further end of where women ordinarily have children from the national average is a little older that they would say, well, in light of the fact that she's had a child now and given her age, it's time for us to send her out to pasture. She's not going to be as interested in the company anymore because things have changed in her life. And I could see it also being the other way. I could see a woman having a child, let's say, right out of college, who's starting to begin her career. They're going to say, well, look, she's having children this young. I don't think she's going to be the right fit for us going forward. Think about the hours that she's going to have to put in. How could you do that with kids? She's not going to be available, which kind of then begs the question is, well, what is that age where they're going to say, this is the appropriate age or this is okay. And again, I preface this by saying, I don't mean to be a cynic, but we have just seen enough of these cases where it's the stereotype of for whatever, that there's no age that is going to be satisfactory to a company whereby a woman is going to be able to, to give birth and also be on the top of the career path for that company. The answer to your question is yes, you're right, but I don't think you need sex plus anything to get there. I think all you need is gender and gender stereotypes. Because reproduction is how women are defined all across our lives, whether we ever had kids or not. I don't have any kids, but when people look at me, when I was 20, they thought of me as I'm going to potentially have babies. And now that I am past the age where I'm probably going to be having babies, they look at me as someone who, well, gee, why didn't she ever have children? Maybe there's something wrong with her. You know, I mean, so it's a stereotype that it goes back to what I was saying about the roles that you want people to play, mm-hmm. right? So your 20-year-old, they're saying, okay, well, she's devoting her life to kids. She's not a good worker. The 45-year-old who has a baby, oh, well, she doesn't really want to be a part of this company anymore. She's having kids now. Still a gender stereotype. They're still assuming because you decided on motherhood that you are opting out of the workplace. And that is an assumption based on long-held gender stereotypes that women are always mothers first and workers second. And workers are just the sort of extra that if they can look just like a man, okay, maybe. But the minute they have a kid, well, then we're not going to have that, right? And don't forget that there's an intersection with race, too. Some women who are not white women are going to be thought of as playing a different role than women who are white women having children. Because white women having children is always sort of a gold-accepted standard in society. Not so much if you're African-American, right? Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been enough study on how the stereotypes play out. But if you look at just what your idea of a black woman having children is, well, it's that, you know, thank you, Ronald Reagan, for the stereotype of that woman who was defrauding welfare, right? So how that plays out in the workplace when black women have children or when brown women have children or when Asian women have children, it hasn't been well studied, but there's something that's going to be at work there because it's a very different situation when those women have children. Our idea of them having children is very different. It's not what it is for white women. Sure. Or also, let's say, for example, like the cultural stereotype where I could absolutely envision a scenario whereby a company would say, well, this woman who's of a particular culture, insert culture. I mean, we can, there's many cultures that you could probably insert here, right? And say, we know this isn't going to be her first child. Therefore, this is only the beginning. And perhaps there's other people that we need to consider as part of the executive track. And of course, that's, again, just playing into destructive cultural stereotypes. Families that look different. 
same-sex couples, people mm-hmm. that are gender queer, people that are tra- you know, transition. All of these things are going to intersect in a way that I think is better understood when you think about cultural stereotypes and the roles we assign to these folks than about kind of easy, glib terms like sex plus. That's really not a good description or even a good legal theory for what I, the range of discrimination I think we meant to cover with do courts normally require a plaintiff to have a comparator in the workplace that they can compare themselves to? Or can you bring a case of gender stereotypes based solely on an individual's circumstance? I would say you can bring it solely based on the individual circumstance. Okay. I do think because of the way many previous decisions have been interpreted, some of them I think erroneously, but they're there. I think it is good if you can try to find comparators okay. and at least try to argue that. I think you're safer doing that as a lawyer if I'm thinking strategically. Right. But I, I had a case where he said to my client, you can't do this job. You have kids. Okay. I didn't feel I needed a comparator in that situation. Right. I agree. I think comparators, I think one, they've been defined too restrictively. I think that yes. a lot of courts have gotten it incorrect about who a comparator is supposed to be. And I also think that, again, I think there's been an over-reliance on the comparators. Okay. Uh, in Massachusetts at the state level, our Supreme Judicial Court has has said explicitly, you know, you don't need to have identical twins as comparators. You don't even always need a comparator. You okay. need to have evidence of discrimination. What is that? Right. May not be a comparator. Great okay. if you've got one. Okay. I think it's harder to make that argument on the federal level. And I mm-hmm. think in some circuits, it can be very, very hard uh, okay. to make that comparison because of the restricted definition of a, uh, uh, of a comparator. Right. Interesting. So Rebecca, tell us a little bit about from the perspective of gender stereotypes and especially when we're talking about originally caregiver discrimination, what are the types of emotional and psychological impact that people experience as a result of this type of treatment? I know it's an overarching type of a question, but it's something that I think is important for people that are listening. I'm glad you asked me that question because I think it gets, when we talk about the theory, it's fun for us as lawyers, but I think a lot of these things get lost. I represented a guy who sued CBS, and I will never forget at his deposition, the lawyer asked him, what sort of emotional distress have you encountered? And he went on for a good 20 minutes just sobbing. He wasn't able to have the relationship he wanted to with his daughter because he couldn't take the FMLA leave. And when he went back to work, he was really humiliated and penalized at work in a very, very horrible way. He was just humiliated terribly. And he felt that it impaired his ability to bond with his second daughter. And that really was something that it's hard to express it now, but it just was so emotionally devastating for him. That sure. this connection with his daughter was compromised by what he was going through at work. I had another client once who said, you know, my daughter said to me the other day, I really don't like supervisor. She makes mommy sad. Mm. And when you hear your own kids say that back to you, especially when you think you're hiding it so well, that's just a moment where like, wow, you know, I had one client who the mediation, she settled a case and she gave this statement about how Part of the reason she was doing this was because she wanted her sons to learn that women should be treated equally and that you don't just roll over when someone does that to you. And she brought her sons to the mediation. We sat there and we listened. They had actually came with me to a couple of the arguments. One of them decided he wanted to be alone. I think it really 
comes back to the effect that it has on their kids and they don't want their kids to grow up in a world and to see that sort of thing happen or to have it happen to them. And so I think it's really, it's almost become cliche how politicians say, no, no, it's not a women's issue. It's a family issue. But I think when you're talking about the emotional distress, it is a family issue. It affects mm-hmm. how these people are able to care for their families, how they're able to raise their children, what their children see, and then down the line, what their children have learned from this to take for their own lives. Because your kids are always watching. You think they're not, but they are. Yeah. And they're soaking it up like a sponge, whether you, whether you think they are or not. This is going to affect their lives. And I think a lot of parents get that. And when they have these conflicts in the workplace that don't let them be there for their kids, I think it's profoundly emotionally horrible. My client that had the wife who was in her end stages of cancer, I'll never forget what he said in his deposition. He said, I wanted to give her a soft hand and I couldn't. Sorry. And he really just did that. And, you know, my client who had the mediation, she settled for an amount and I was worried it was too small. Her husband was in his end stages of cancer. And three days after we signed that settlement with an agreement, he died. So to this day, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional, but I was glad we settled it because he was waiting for me to take care of his family. Wow. It's really devastating. They're devastating. It's easy to trivialize, I think. And I don't say that to disparage my colleagues on the other side of the bar. They're defending their clients, right? But I have one guy I, I know who switched sides and he said to me, you know, I don't think I ever really understood emotional distress and employment until now. He said, and I don't think my colleagues on the other side really get it either. Yep. And I suspect that's true. Yes. It's not because they're bad people. I don't think they are. Most of them are not. But I think it's just really hard to really understand it, especially if you haven't gone through it yourself. In many ways, it's because of this ability to quantify the emotional impact of something that hurts people in so many different ways and the impact over time. And and certainly it's something that's very hard. And when you have that gray area, it seems to be from the other side, you can see that they'd want to not pay as much, right? Not want to give into the story of the emotional impact. I can certainly see that being a reason behind why they may speak about it in such ways, or maybe that's a part of their their narrative, right? I think think they're all bad people. Uh, I'll, I'll go the other way on that. One. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Listeners out there, there are many, many fine defense counsels out there. Many. Well, maybe a couple, but many is a strong word. But I, I don't dislike all of them, just most of them. There's one colleague I have who's on the defense bar, and, and I asked her once, why don't you do a plaintiff's lawyer? And she said, I can't handle it emotionally the way you do. Yeah. She's like, so I'd rather just try to make sure that those things don't happen. And I will hand her, she's one of the best defense attorneys. I have only had one case against her in 25 years. And I think that's kudos to her and her clients and how she counsels her clients. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard for most people. They're not writers. They're not actors, right? It's hard for a lot of people to describe what's going on. And it's very easy to trivialize. And I think that makes it difficult to explain it. Our clients aren't screenwriters. They aren't actors. Our society has been educated mostly by TV, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's kind of hard to really understand a lot of this stuff. And when you hear people just, well, it's really humiliating to be said for him to say that in front of my coworkers. Oh, wah, 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 wah. You know, I mean, well. Because they feel it. They can't always put it into words. You Isn't know, that writers, yeah. you know. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's also a lot of times we represent a lot of men and it's very difficult that I've found for men to be vulnerable at times. It's very difficult for them to explain 
I've been hurt. I'm feeling emotional pain. This is how it's impacted my marriage. This is how it's impacted my relationship with my children. This is how it's impacted me, for example, being intimate with my wife. And I'm not just making that up. I mean, I've been in numerous depositions where you can tell that the men are stumbling to say this. And I had one particular instance where a particular client did a very poor job of explaining the emotional stress that he felt. And then on a break, he said to me something to the effect of, he's like, God, you know, it's it's so hard. I, I feel like I can't open up about about this. And, and I hope I did okay explaining what happened to me. And I said, you really didn't say much. And he's like, oh, well, this is what I wanted to say, but I'm embarrassed. And I'm like, well, you know, you got to do the best you can. And so at least for us, and again, I'm not trying to stereotype, but a lot of, I see that mostly with our male clients is that willingness to be vulnerable about their emotional pain. I had a client, this isn't a caregiver case, but it was, it was a sex discrimination case, and she just had a very flat affect. And part of that was because she'd grown up in a man's world, and she just learned to, you know, there was a cartoon of, of Queen Elizabeth, same expression on her face, no matter what, right? Stiff upper lip. And she just had a hard time explaining, and I think she had a real hard time on the stand explaining how devastating it was for her to lose that job to a jury because she was just a stoic sort of person. She played hockey. She played competitive. She played in the Olympics, not in the American team, but the Swiss team. You know, so, I mean, this is someone who's pretty tough, right? But I think it's a hard thing to explain on the stand. It, it really, really is. I was actually really surprised that my client who sued CVS was able to get that out. And, and I think he'd been actually waiting to tell them for a long time. And he just exploded when we got to the deposition. And he had to take a break and I was like, you're all right. He's like, well, it's got to be done. He's just going to say, got to be done. I'm sure it was also cathartic to get it off his chest and to be able to tell his story. Sometimes the witnesses, I mean, I've interviewed witnesses that go on for three hours. And at the end of it, they're like, wow, it feels really good to get this off my chest if yeah. I'm this employer. And I'm like, right. yeah, it's been three hours. I bet it has. And I'm cheaper than your therapist. So. Right. Exactly. So Rebecca, just kind of coming up on top of what you had said before about defense counsel, and we're just talking about it, in terms of gender stereotypes and caregiver discrimination that an individual may experience, what are your recommendations to employers in preventing this and addressing this? Going back to what we were talking about before about what do the data show? I think employers have to look critically at what the data show. And I think employers need to, if they're serious about DEI, need to look at the data. They, most of they need to keep the data. I think they should keep data on caregivers, better data than they've got. In a lot of cases, I've asked for that sort of data, and they often just don't have it. They don't keep it. I think they should keep that sort of data. And then I think that you need to go beyond the individual explanations. A lot of change doesn't take place because, oh, well, that was because this person in this situation, that's because of that. Oh, well, and, and that was in this, that's because that happened. That, that, that's not something we have to fix. I think you need to look at data and look at trends and be very honest that if there's a trend that shows one group just never stays at your company, that maybe the problem is, I, I think it's real easy to explain, well, this woman, she just wanted this. She just wanted that. She said this. She said that. Well, yeah, I'm sure she said that in the exit interview. She didn't tell you everything she hated about it or how she felt you undermined her and how she felt you didn't stand by her and how after 15 years at this company, she expected better. No, she didn't say that in the exit interview because she needs you as a reference for her next job. So no, she didn't say that. But I think those are easy excuses. And I think 
employers would behoove themselves very well to maybe take that with a grain of salt or not assume that it was 100% honest and explains the problem. Because I think it's easy for employers to get people in and they've kind of mastered that, right? They've got recruiting tools, but then people don't stay. You know, if you find that a lot of women have kids and leave your company or not very many men take the paternity leave, I think it's good to critically ask yourselves why. So look at the data, be more self-critical once you see it. And then when your managers give you explanations that are very individualized, take that with a grain of salt too. It doesn't mean the person's evil. It doesn't mean the person is a horrible racist or a horrible sexist. It may mean that this person has some blind spots that they don't see. And, you know, it may also help to have, if there's a conflict going on, have someone else evaluate this person's Um, I think it's real hard to argue when you're in a court of law that the company had someone else evaluate them and they came to the same conclusion. Yeah. It's real hard to argue that that this was, you know, but it's also, I mean, it may go a long way to goodwill with your employee too. Well, you know, they even had so-and-so. Okay. So if so-and-so said that, okay, maybe there's a point. I think that's how we get beyond where we are now because I think organizations have more structural discrimination that then interacts with people's tendencies to stereotype that then perpetuates a situation Uh that they then want to say they're powerless to control. And I don't think they're powerless to control it, but they may have to do internally unpopular things may have to be done to make that, to make that a reality. And it goes beyond one day of, you know, DEI training. That's, that's Yeah, makes sense. Rebecca, I want to thank you so much for taking out the time to speak with us today. It was very informative, engaging, and we've learned so much about these very important issues. You're a member. We're all members of NILA, I believe, and we're all fighting for uh, rights for employees. So I wish you the best in your efforts and in fighting for the greater cause. And I thank you for your time. Definitely appreciate your work. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank Thank you you guys for having me. This has been great. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you guys in, in person. Thanks for joining us today on the Workplace Justice Podcast. Love this episode? Leave us a review and tell us what you think about our show. If you haven't subscribed yet, head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast listening app to subscribe to our show so you'll never miss a new episode. Need help? Talk to an employment lawyer today. Visit our website at nisarlaw.com or call 212-600-9534 for your free case evaluation. See you in the next episode.